Welcome to the Morphous for Menopause podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Donsky, a holistic nutritionist for more than 15 years. My passion is helping women navigate through perimenopause and menopause. On today's show, I interview Dr. Sarah Gottfried. She's a Harvard-educated medical doctor and board-certified gynecologist who treats the root causes of problems, not just symptoms. She's also a nationally recognized yoga teacher. You won't want to miss this episode. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Andrea, I'm so excited to be here. And I am so excited to have you. All right, I'm really, I want to talk about your new book, Women, Food, and Hormones. What inspired you to write it? Well, the inspiration was that I was really struggling with my weight. So I wrote my first book, The Hormone Cure, about 10 years ago. And I basically was seeing patients during the day. Yeah, thank you for holding it up for those who are watching. I was seeing patients during the day and then writing at night and just all that sitting led to me being a metabolic train wreck. And so I wanted to figure out, okay, what's going to work in terms of getting my metabolic hormones back into balance. And so I tried keto and keto did not work for me. I went on keto with my husband. He lost 20 pounds and I gained weight and I was like, what's up with this? And I started to get all of these keto refugees in my clinic, women who had a similar story where they tried keto, maybe with a male partner or male colleague, the partner lost weight, they did not. And so I wanted to look into it more deeply. I ended up trying keto a few more times and didn't get it right until the third time when I discovered that there's a few pieces that are really essential for women and for their hormones, including detoxification, first and foremost, we really need that for hormonal balance, and then combine it with nutritional ketosis, not bacon and butter and fat bombs, but a well-formulated ketogenic diet that's whole foods based, really plant forward and uh, excellent for the microbiome. And then to also layer in intermittent fasting because that allows women to eat more carbohydrates depending on the timing. And that I think is essential, especially for thyroid function, for cortisol and for insulin. So that's what this book is about. It's a four week plan to do this female adapted ketogenic diet. And I love that you're talking about adapting the keto diet because we have heard for you know for from so many health experts that doing a, a, a keto diet is great for a very short period of time, but not for an ongoing period of time. And when you talk about adapting it, so basically you're adapting it in a way that would be healthy for all of us, especially women in you know perimenopause and menopause, but I'm guessing in general when it comes to hormones. So I wanna talk a little bit about your thoughts on the type. So you talk about carbohydrates and the importance of it, obviously. Now, what carbohydrates are you referring to? So I'm guessing it's not refined carbohydrates is, you know, Give us a little bit of that information, because I think it's important for us to understand what you're referring to when we talk about carbs. Yeah, it's important to realize that carbs are not the enemy. I think a lot of folks villainize carbs, especially people who promote a classic ketogenic diet. And the truth is we need carbs. We need it to make serotonin. We need it to sleep well. We need it for thyroid function and also for good stress response. So what I think is important with carbs is to realize that the enemy is actually metabolic inflexibility. So that's where you're not able to switch back and forth between burning carbs and burning fat. And that was my story. I was stuck in the burning carb mode. And when you eat too much in the way of refined carbs, it basically gets stored as fat. 
So that's what was happening for me. And I realized that keto was the best way to address it because we know caloric restriction doesn't work. It fails 98% of the time. So you asked what carbs? The carbs that I found were the most helpful for me and for the patients that I did N of one studies for in the book are basically vegetables. So vegetables, 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 the dark green leafies, the cruciferous vegetables, the allium vegetables like onion and leeks and garlic, the things that help you make more glutathione, also important for detoxification, especially of estrogen, as well as some of those vegetables that you may not think of that are a little more starchy, but sometimes are quite good for glucose metabolism and insulin, such as squash. So those are the vegetables that I really think are important. There's a long list of them. What we want in terms of microbiome diversity is for all of us to get about 25 to 35 different species of vegetables each week. That's a really good point. And also it's a tough thing to do as well, because so many of us are so used to eating what we like and what we know. So trying new things can be a little difficult, but I do like it. So what are some tips that can encourage people to try something new like in terms of maybe coming up with some creative recipes or, you know, giving somebody like, okay, so next time you're at the grocery store, try one new vegetable that you haven't tried before. Yeah. I love that strategy. And I think uh, many of us live near a farmer's market or a grocery store that uh, has seasonal produce. So I think using seasonal produce is a really helpful approach. I've got 50 recipes in the book. A lot of them are vegetables that you may not have heard of. So these are the ones that I think are part of an important rotation. Things like bok choy, Jerusalem artichoke, uh, regular artichokes, having asparagus, all of those really rich prebiotic fibers that feed the benevolent microbes in the gut that help you with glucose metabolism, help you with burning fat, and help to keep down those more Homer Simpson type of bacteria that lead to problems with your hormones, problems with estrogen, with insulin, with testosterone. Yeah, I love that. What are your thoughts on fruits? So fruits are interesting. I mean, We've got so much data on the Mediterranean diet. It's definitely the most proven diet that we have. But here's what I found on the Mediterranean diet. I gain weight on it. So part of that is related to this thing called my adipostat, you know, that part of the brain that detects whether I'm full or not. So my adipostat is basically broken. And so when I eat a Mediterranean diet, when it's, you know, whole foods only, I eat too much. And I find especially that certain fruits spike my glucose and cause problems with my insulin. So we've all been taught that fruit is good for you. I think it depends on how metabolically healthy you are. So back when I was noticing this weight gain with the Mediterranean diet, I was eating apples and grapes and uh, you know oranges, citrus, all different types of fruit in season. And what I learned I started wearing a continuous glucose monitor. I learned that these were spiking my glucose up to the diabetic range. So I had to restrict fruits to become metabolically healthy again, which is part of a four-week ketogenic pulse. You can still have certain fruits like olives and avocados. But then what I can do now is I can add them back and see how I respond. So I still can't tolerate apples. I still can't tolerate uh, grapes, those still spike me to the diabetic range, but I can have some other fruits. I can have one per day. So I'll have a serving of berries as an example. I love cranberries and pomegranates. That's a great way to feed the acromansia in your gut, 
which are so important for maintaining your gut lining. They help with leaky gut. They also help with uh, glucose pathways, with stabilizing your glucose. I'm so happy you mentioned that because I also wear a continuous glucose monitor and I live, you know, and it's, it's interesting because we hear, you know, eat your complex carbohydrates. They're so good for you. And then even for, so for myself, for example, if I have a sweet potato, my blood sugar spikes like crazy. I'm going to show you this just because you were mentioning fruit. So this is my continuous glucose monitor. So this wow. check out this spike. This was 190 to 196. That yeah. was watermelon. Yeah. So, when, and you hear so often people are like, watermelon's great. It's not going to spike your blood sugar. It's got water and fiber. That was for me. So the fact that you mentioned that, I love that. And I have other ones where I show that I've eaten five grapes and how that has spiked my blood sugar. So I, I'm, I'm happy that you said that because I think it's, we're also individual and what works for me may not work for you and vice versa. So it's, and what I noticed too, and the thing that's important to talk about, and perhaps you can talk a little bit about insulin resistance is that when your blood sugar is spiked, it actually throw thing, throws things off for the rest of the day, especially if you're having it at night. So I'd love you to talk a little bit about the importance of glucose and really balancing our blood sugar. Yeah, I would say insulin, which controls glucose, is the most important hormone to zero in on. So it's really the focus of my new book, Women, Food, and Hormones, because we know that insulin is the ultimate decider of whether you store fat or you burn fat. So I was insulin resistance. I remember when I was 35, I went to my doctor and I was saying, listen, I can't lose the weight that I gained after having, having a couple of babies. I've got PMS, you know, what do you recommend? And he wrote this on a whiteboard. He wrote exercise more plus eat less equals weight loss. And that's just completely wrong. You know, it's, it's an oversimplified way of looking at the situation. One of the things that I, I always repeat is that calories matter, but hormones matter more. And insulin is really at the front of the line. So when your cells become numb to the insulin signal as a result of eating too many refined carbs, not exercising enough, not getting enough sleep, because we know that's associated with insulin resistance, having too much stress, or in my case, all of the above, what that leads to is this problem where your cells are numb to the insulin signal. And so insulin keeps rising. You store more belly fat, kind of waiting for you know the famine and the famine never comes and none of the clothes in your closet fit. So the key is to really correct that glucose spike, to correct insulin as the root cause of this whole problem. And part of the issue with glucose is that Insulin changes first, usually postprandial insulin. So like one hour after you eat watermelon or whatever it is, and then glucose changes later. And the insulin change can predate the glucose change by up to 13 years. So we want to intervene as early as possible when you first start to notice belly fat, or you start to notice this redistribution that occurs in perimenopause related to insulin and estrogen and testosterone and growth hormone. We want to intervene as early as possible. And a big part of that is, as you said, personalization. So you don't have to buy a continuous glucose monitor. I've been wearing one for three years because I love that personalization. I'm still learning. But you can also use, for instance, a glucose meter, which you can get for $25 at your local drugstore. You can check your fasting glucose. You can check it an hour after having watermelon. You can do the Andrea watermelon experiment and see what's true for you. So we really have to correct the insulin as the root cause of this problem with belly fat and with insulin resistance. 
Over through my research over the last four and a half, five years, we found that there are over 85 different signs and symptoms of menopause, which, you know, prior to that, we thought, oh yeah, there's 40, 45, but no, we have tracked now. And I'm, we I always talk about the N of one and I'm glad that you mentioned it. I'm always saying I'm an N of one. So I always see what, you know, what, when it happens with me first, and then I always bring it out to everyone else and try to educate everyone else about it. And researching and reading and speaking to women, thousands of women, we found that there really are over 85. I mean, well over that you know, weight gain, like you mentioned in our belly hard. Like a lot of women have told me I'm on TikTok and I've had a, I know, um, I've had a really good time on TikTok because I really try to understand what women are going through. And the feedback is generally their belly, belly fat and hard belly fat. Why do women gain weight specifically in their belly? And why is it so hard? Yeah, I really appreciate the hundred plus symptoms that women have through perimenopause and menopause. And it takes clinicians like you to really tune into these more nuanced symptoms that women have. But I would say the belly fat is not such a nuanced symptom. It's something that many of us struggle with. And we know from robust data, we've got dozens and dozens of studies showing that women, as they start the perimenopausal transition, and I usually pick that up about 10 years before the final menstrual period, we know that weight starts to redistribute. So fat, instead of getting deposited at the breasts, the hips, and the buttocks, it starts to get deposited at the waist. So that is also known as visceral fat. There's kind of the subcutaneous fat that you can see, which is softer. And then there's the deeper visceral fat. And that's the fat that we really worry about because that's what's associated with metabolic inflexibility it's associated with this potential risk of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. I had prediabetes and I was able to reverse it with this particular protocol. But we see this redistribution. We think it's in part related to insulin changing. So insulin tends to rise as you get older. And if you just look at fat deposition, we know that after 40, most women gain about five pounds of fat and lose about five pounds of muscle. And so unless you're actively doing something to address this, it's the beginning of this decline that most of us do not want. So there's the redistribution of the fat stores. There's the change in insulin. Cortisol also rises. Estrogen starts to decline after fluctuating wildly during the first part of perimenopause. And estrogen is also involved in appetite. So a lot of women notice uh, as they go through the second half of perimenopause, I think of the first half as being low progesterone and wildly fluctuating estrogen. Second half of perimenopause is where estrogen is low along with progesterone. So starting there, we will see this increase in visceral fat. So we, we want to address it. We want to do those lifestyle things that really make a difference. And I found that there's two things that you can do. One is to do caloric restriction which I don't believe in for a couple of reasons. The other is a ketogenic diet. And those I found to be the most effective, especially keto when it's adapted for women, because it's so effective at burning visceral fat. We know this from many randomized trials, but once again, there's a male bias here. So a lot of the randomized trials looking at weight loss, looking at visceral fat on the ketogenic diet, about 80% of them are in men. So we have to make these assumptions about women. I'm doing some research at Thomas Jefferson University looking at prediabetes in women and what we can do to reverse it. But I would say a ketogenic diet is the most effective way to do it 
But I believe that it's best if it's a four-week protocol. So a four-week therapeutic diet, not to continue for months on end, but to do it for four weeks and then transition to your carb threshold following mostly the Mediterranean diet, whole foods. You touched upon calorie restriction. Can you explain? So on social media, I do a lot, like I mentioned on TikTok, and there are a lot of health advocates who are saying that the way to go is all calorie restriction. That's the only way. Calorie deficit is the only way to lose weight. What are your thoughts? And you already said you're not a big fan of it. Can you explain why? Yeah, there's two reasons why I'm opposed to calorie restriction. The first is it's an epic fail for most of us, women especially, because we know that about 98% of people cannot sustain it. So the idea with calorie restriction is that you're reducing your calories to less than your basal metabolic rate. And so most people just can't do that for a long period of time. And so they cheat and then they feel terrible and it starts this whole vicious cycle of shame and guilt and self-recrimination and, and your clothes still don't fit. So I'm not a big fan of calorie restriction. The other reason why I don't like it is it screws up your hormones. So a lot of people don't understand that you've got to have your hormones in balance to be metabolically healthy. And I'm not saying it has to be a particular body mass index. I care much more about metabolic health and metabolic flexibility than the weight on the bathroom scale. So to be metabolically flexible, to be able to switch back and forth like a toggle between burning carbs and burning fat is the goal. And we know hormonally that caloric restriction tends to lead to a stress response, especially in the female body. So that means higher cortisol. High cortisol makes you store more belly fat. It also can make you create more reverse T3, which then blocks the action of the thyroid hormone on every cell in the body. So those are two reasons why I don't like uh, caloric restriction. I just don't think it's a, it's a sustainable approach. It's too stressful for women. So in your new book, Women, Food, and Hormones, what? so talk a little bit about what that four weeks looks like for somebody. So for our listeners who are like, okay, I'm in perimenopause, I'm in or menopause, I have extra weight that I don't want to have, or I want to be able to, you know, feel like I did prior, get rid of some of these or majority of these signs and symptoms, the 85 plus signs and symptoms, take us through what that four weeks, four weeks looks like. So the four weeks starts off with detoxification. So what I've found over the past 25 years of taking care of women is that you have to have your detox pathways open to really be successful at balancing your hormones and losing fat. So detox pathways open, that means that you're pooping every single morning. You feel like you've got complete evacuation. You've got plenty of those prebiotic fibers that are making those benevolent microbes that we talked about, including acromansia. And those are helping you really detoxify. So the thing with estrogen especially is that you wanna use it in the body and then you wanna lose it. You don't want it circulating over and over again in the body like bad karma. You wanna be pooping it out every morning. So the first part is detoxification. That's where I really have people focus on getting those vegetables, getting the species variety, getting into the habit of counting your net carbs so I believe in net carbs, not total carbs. I think that's really important for women. And then we bring in the nutritional ketosis when you're ready, once that detox is open. So nutritional ketosis for a total of four weeks. And then the third part is to layer in intermittent fasting 
because that really allows you to eat more carbohydrates and to do it in a circadian pattern to eat your carbs primarily when your insulin is most sensitive, which is usually, you know, the first, uh, the first part of the day. So that's when melatonin's at its lowest. We become more insulin resistant in the two to three hours before we go to bed. So those are the three different parts, the three different pillars of this four-week protocol. I find it fascinating in terms of finding the timeline. So you're not saying don't have them. You're saying maybe eat them earlier in the day because that's when we can actually, our insulin is working better. So that's pretty, um, it's so interesting. And for everybody who's listening, definitely, we're going to put a link to Dr. Sarah's uh, book below, Women, Food, and Hormones, and to really help you on your menopausal and perimenopausal journey, journey, especially if you want to feel like yourself again. And I think that's super important. So you talked about detoxification, and I'm a huge proponent of detoxification. Can you go into that a little bit? We know our liver is our master detox organ in our body. Explain why detoxification is so important. And also, how do genetics play a role? Yes. Well, I'm the director of precision medicine at uh, Thomas Jefferson University Marcus Institute of Integrative Health. So I love to talk about the details. And, you know, with detoxification, with women especially, if we just start first with estrogen, we know that we need certain things in place. So we need to have, there's a couple phases to liver detoxification. We need to have those pathways open. We need to make sure that we're getting our cruciferous vegetables, that we're making glutathione, that we have sufficient N-acetylcysteine to make glutathione. Uh, we wanna make sure that we've got adequate methylation. So eating those dark leafy greens is a great way to get your B vitamins. Now, genetically, I always joke that I have almost every hormonal imbalance that is possible. And when it comes to detox, I've got a number of them too. So you and I, is the reason why we went into this field maybe. So I've got issues with uh, the methylation pathway, not just MTHFR, but you know multiple SNPs. I also have missing glutathione S transferase genes. I have uh, problems with um, metabolizing alcohol. So let's talk about alcohol for a moment because I think that's such an important part of detoxification. I see a lot of women, I specialize in perimenopause and menopause, and I see a lot of women who come to me and they're just like, okay, tell me what to do. Okay, I'll do keto for four weeks, but you can't take away my alcohol. And the truth is alcohol slows down your metabolism, slows down fat burning for about 24 hours for each serving that you have. And it hits harder after 40. And one of the things it does is it's a bit of a bully. So when it comes to the lineup of toxins that your liver is trying to deal with, alcohol cuts to the front of the line. So if you're having a glass or two of wine every single night or a cocktail, that is slowing down your detoxification for the next 24 hours. It is blocking fat burning. It can prevent you from going into ketosis and from burning fat. And so I'm a fan of getting off of the sauce for four weeks, I think that's a really essential part of this four-week protocol. Now you can bring it back later, and you know once you're metabolically flexible and your detox pathways are open. But I advise women to come off of it for four weeks. If you can't come off of it for four weeks, then you have a sticky relationship with alcohol, and we need to have a different conversation. And I was listening to Dr. Daniel Amen, and he talks about the negatives of alcohol on the brain. It's also a massive trigger, and like you said for four weeks to just reset everything. And then you can bring it back. And then by that time you might say, well, you know what? 
I had my glass of wine and I noticed I feel a major negative impact and that impact on me. So you might actually choose not to have it. So I'm happy that you said that. So in terms of, so when our liver is working properly and we're detoxifying properly, that's when our body can start to reset itself. And that's where you, you're saying that your book is really helpful in terms of letting, allowing women to feel like themselves again, to allow them to take off that weight. Does it help also with brain health? Does it help with other things as well, as opposed to just weight? It does. So the cool thing about the ketogenic diet is that ketones are one of the only ways that you can diet and actually see the effect of the diet. So ketones are a measure of how effective your body is responding to a ketogenic diet. You know, you can assess if you're in nutritional ketosis. So the idea is once you're in nutritional ketosis, first time I did it, it took me about a week to get into ketosis, which is why we have that prep week with detoxification. And now I go in and out of ketosis and I can get into ketosis within about 14 hours. So the key here is that ketones, which you make from burning fat, are a signaling uh, molecule that does multiple things. So it's very effective in the brain. It improves mental acuity. One of the things we know from the research of Lisa Moscone at Cornell is that after age 40, about 80% of women experience this thing called cerebral hypometabolism. And the way I describe it to my patients is, okay, this is like your brain slowing down where, you know, you walk into a room and you can't remember why. And, you know, it's just a slowdown globally in the brain. And most women are like, oh yeah, I got that. I totally uh, experienced that myself. So What's happening there is that the brain's utilization of glucose is starting to falter. So mitochondria are not working the way that they once did. And when you put ketones in that system, it's this alternate fuel source. And so a lot of women notice when they're in ketosis, so that's usually by week two on this protocol, that they can hear the angels singing. Like they just have this mental acuity that is so much better than what it was when they were eating, you know, sort of in the wild. So I think ketones are a really important signaling molecule, not just for the brain, but they also help with the inflammasome. They help with reducing inflammation, which I think of as kind of that frat party in the body that we don't want, especially if you're trying to lose fat. What's the best way to measure them? I know when I first started learning about it, now I've come a long way, but when I first started learning about ketones is I would measure it in urine and I, I would be frustrated because I'm like, it's never showing that I'm in ketosis. Then I switched to measuring blood and that's where I really saw there was a difference and I was in ketosis. So what, in your opinion, what is the best way to measure it and to know if we are in ketosis? Yeah, so there's three ways to measure ketones. <clears throat> the first is urine, as you mentioned. The second is blood, which I think is the most accurate. And the third is breath. So blood I found to be the most helpful in terms of telling you day to day how deep your ketosis is. Now, the cool thing is you don't need super deep ketosis. You can be into a mild state like 0.5 to 1.0 and still get all of the benefits of a ketogenic diet. And that's what we typically see when you're using net carbs. Urine you know, urine was used quite a bit when Atkins was popular. And what we know is that you can measure ketones in urine when you first get into ketosis. And then as the body gets more adapted, you don't spill as many ketones in the urine. So you can sometimes miss it or it's just like a trace positive. So I don't recommend urine unless you want to use it just at the beginning because it is less expensive. And then I happen to have a little device here. So there's a breath meter that you can also use 
for those who are watching the video, uh, and it measures ketones in the breath. So my recommendation is to go with blood. To go with blood. And then there are like Keto Mojo, there are certain devices you can get. And we'll put a link to that below as well that you can try so you can see. And I'm really glad that you mentioned actually that you don't you can be in mild ketosis, so like 0 0.5, 0 0.6 to that 1.0, and it'll still have effects. So you don't have to be, you know, I know the number I think is up to three or something. So you don't have to be in that range to actually get the benefits. You can be at the lower range and still benefit. Yeah. And I find anecdotally that most women feel better in mild ketosis. When you get into the higher levels of ketosis, you know, I found, for instance, when I would go for a really long hike and I would do a fasted workout, my ketones would get up to 5.0 oh, wow. and I just didn't feel as good. I felt a little nauseated. I felt um, I couldn't sleep because I was so revved up. So I think women do better in that middle ground. I think that's a much better place to be. Let's talk about exercise. And I know in your book I was reading and from the research that I've been doing is that a lot of us, as we get into perimenopause and menopause, and or we're told, you know, in order to lose weight, we talked about the calorie restriction, so we're not going to go through that, but also exercise more, and that's going to really help. But I know that too much exercise can actually be pro-inflammatory, meaning it can create inflammation in the body. What are your thoughts for women as we enter into this stage of life? So I think we need a balanced exercise regimen. And by that I mean. It should be personalized to you. I have some women who have such high cortisol levels, their stress level is so high, they have high perceived stress that they don't do well with cardio. And so those are women that I, I like to kind of slowly adapt to an exercise regimen, focusing first on walking, uh, working out with friends, yoga, Pilates, things that are more adaptive that are not gonna raise your cortisol. For people who are pretty healthy and more athletic, what I would recommend is high intensity interval training. So I think that's still better than what I think of as chronic cardio, which is what I was doing when I was in my thirties and I went and saw that doctor. At that point, I was running about four miles, five times a week. And here he was telling me I needed to exercise more. I left his office, went to the lab and found that my cortisol was three times what it should have been. And so running more was not the solution. High intensity interval training, on the other hand, allows your cortisol to come back to normal as you, you know, with HIT, what we usually do is go to a maximal pace of whatever you're doing, whether it's running or on a, a Peloton or lifting weights, and then you come back to a resting place, usually for 75 seconds or so, and you go through these cycles so that you don't get the overall stress response. You don't get the elevated cortisol. You're intermittently pushing on your body in an adaptive way. And we know that's helpful for growth hormone, which is so important for women after menopause because women make more growth hormone than men until menopause. And then our levels drop precipitously. And it's part of this whole story with the belly fat and the visceral fat. And I think exercise as well as whey protein are, that's a very effective way to raise growth hormone. It also helps with testosterone. So what are some other natural ways that we can increase our sex hormones like estrogen or testosterone and progesterone through food or supplements? Well, I think the main way in terms of cortisol is to really manage your stress. And I feel like, you know, I, I'm smiling as I say that because 
I've had so many doctors say that to me over the years, and I don't find it very helpful. I think what's helpful is to really figure out what works for you. And what works for you might be different now than it was five or 10 years ago. You know, I, I found that yoga was the most helpful thing for me, <clears throat> yoga and meditation. Yeah. And like what I find... And you found that too. Yeah, and yeah. Life, because it's lifestyle. It's learning how to manage your stress, right? Which is going to manage your cortisol levels. Absolutely. And you know, what's working for me right now is something called Bateco breathing, which is a way of getting your breath very efficient. So I do a lot of public speaking. I've got a little like voice stress that you can hear. And so Bateco breathing is a great way for me to make my breathing more efficient. And that's working really well for me. So what I encourage women to do is to, to create a menu of what really works for you. So it might be yoga, it might be meditation, might be orgasm, might be walking with your dog or snuggling with your dog. You know, there's so many different ways that we can leverage oxytocin to help us with cortisol. So I think that's a really powerful way to do it. We also know that there's some supplements that can help too when it comes to raising progesterone. So if you're still in perimenopause, we know that chaseberry is a very effective way of raising serum progesterone. We also know that uh, maca is an effective way of raising estrogen levels. It helps with anxiety, depression in women. It also helps with sex drive. So those are some examples of way that, ways that you can help your, your hormones with lifestyle diet, as well as supplements. I mean, you just wrote the book, Women, Food, and Hormones. What are some foods that we can eat to help raise them as well, like in terms of phytoestrogenic foods? Like, what are your thoughts? I mean, obviously something like lignans and flax seeds are great or chickpeas, actually, although may not be on the keto diet legumes, but what about, um, you know, what about soy? What's your thoughts about soy? So soy is so controversial. It's, uh, I feel like if you get a hundred nutritionists, half are fans and half are not. So my general feeling with soy is that if you're eating whole soy and it's organic and it's non-GMO, you can probably have two servings a week without any problem. So, and that includes people with thyroid dysfunction. So I'm a fan of whole soy. I think it's a really good protein source. It's one of those, you know, uh, important proteins, especially I've got a lot of patients who were cases for my book. So they were part of this end of one series who are vegan or vegetarian. And so we really leaned into nuts and seeds and tofu and other things to help them get the right macronutrient ratio and to keep those net carbs where we want them to help balance hormones. So I'm a fan of soy. And um, I even have some cases from the book who contributed some recipes that include soy. You bring up a very good point. So is your book for somebody, because when you think keto, you generally think animal sources of protein. So is your book suitable for people who are vegan or vegetarian? Absolutely it is because I'm food agnostic. You know, I, I have patients who are omnivores. I have patients who come to me on the carnivore diet. I see folks who are on paleo. I have vegans, I have vegetarians. And to me, it's important to serve all of those people and so what we did in the book is we offered a meal planned at the end that is for, you know, the, the full range of patients and what kind of food they like to eat. It is very plant-based because I think that the plant-based forms of fat are the healthiest. So that includes nuts and seeds and avocados and olive oil, uh, olives, avocado oil. 
MCT oil. So all of those I think are really healthy and good. Um, and you can eat them kind of regardless of uh, what your food decision is, what your commitment is. What are your thoughts on blood tests that women in perimenopause and menopause should get? So you've alluded to thyroid a couple of times. You've talked about cortisol understanding. So one of the things that I, I like to share with my audience is that as we get into perimenopause and menopause, things that were worked for us before may not work for us anymore. Like we really have to adapt our body, our way of thinking, everything, mind, body, and soul, everything kind of has to shift as we get into this phase of life. And one of the th first things that presents itself, especially for women who are, you know, having thinning hair or they're gaining weight or they're feeling really tired or their libido is off. I always say, make sure you get your ferritin tested, make sure you get your thyroid tested. What are some other tests that you highly recommend as we get into this phase of life that should be a absolute must go and get that tested? Yeah, the standard tests include a hormone panel. So not just thyroid. Uh, and we can talk about some of the specifics of thyroid testing because I think every woman should have thyroid antibodies tested, both thyroid peroxidase and antithyroid globulin. But I'm also looking at other hormones too. So testosterone free in total. I like to look at IGF-1, which is a proxy for growth hormone. I look at fasting insulin and glucose. I wanna understand that relationship. I like to do a metabolic risk score on every patient. I look at uh, pregnenolone, which is the mother hormone of all the sex hormones. I look at estradiol and progesterone, FSH, and um, I agree with you in terms of hair loss. I like to look at ferritin, iron studies. I also wanna look, and this is related to uh, fat intake. I wanna do an advanced cholesterol panel. So for me, I tend to run that at Cleveland Heart Lab because I find that's the most reliable. And I'm doing NMR lipoprotein testing, looking at things like LDL particle, looking at lipo little a. These are some advanced tests that most mainstream doctors are not doing, but we know for women that at age 55, they catch up to men in terms of cardiovascular risk. So women in perimenopause and menopause, those are the ones that we really need to be looking under the hood to see what's going on, because it's not like they suddenly have a heart attack at 57. This whole story has been happening for decades beforehand, and we wanna pick that up. And sometimes eating too much saturated fat for you and for your genotype can lead to problems with LDLP, with LDL, you know, kind of the old school version of LDL. Um, I also look at HDL function. So we used to pay a lot of attention to HDL cholesterol, you know, having the number within a range, not too low. It tends to be higher for people who exercise. Now we know that function matters more than the actual number. So I like to look at HDL function. And then I would say, I look at inflammatory biomarkers, high sensitivity to C-reactive protein, homocysteine, um, sometimes interleukin-6, which we know tracks with health span, that period of time you feel fantastic and relatively free of disease. I'm also looking at autoimmune disease. So women, as you know, are affected by autoimmune disease at much higher rates than men, probably related to estrogen or relative amounts of estrogen and testosterone. So I do an autoimmune panel where I'm looking at ANA, I'm looking at rheumatoid factor, I'm looking at celiac. Uh, that's the basic panel that I run. I also do genomics and I do dried urine testing to look at urine metabolites. I do micronutrient testing. So I do a lot of testing because I find it's really helpful for those N of one experiments. 
I'm a huge fan of testing and I actually, and I, are you, when you say you're in testing, are you referring to like something like the Dutch test? Yes. Yeah, so I used to do a lot of saliva testing. I used Genova and uh, diagnostics. I did that for probably, I don't know, 15 years. And then I started using Dutch five or seven years ago and I just really love it. So it's a dried urine test. Maybe you'll link to it that um, gives us such comprehensive information about cortisol levels, cortisol awakening response, which I test in every single patient. We can look at diurnal cortisol, kind of what's the pattern over the course of the day. We can look at these metabolites of estrogen that we talked about, the things that we want to be detoxifying. We can look at methylation. We can look at metabolites of progesterone and testosterone. So I find that test incredibly helpful. Yeah, I was looking, I have my Dutch test somewhere right here. I actually just did an interview with someone at the Dutch test company and I am a big fan. So I love that you mentioned it. Uh, Sarah, Dr. Sarah, is there anything that we didn't talk about today with relation to your book or any advice you want to give to women in perimenopause and menopause that um, you want to share before we go? Yes. So the last thing I want to say is keep the hope. You know, I really struggled with my weight. Um, I described earlier how I gained weight with my first book and all the old tricks just didn't work. And this idea of caloric restriction, I think is a setup for failure. So I just really want to encourage people to consider something like a ketogenic pulse for four weeks. It really improves satiety. That's the beautiful thing of these ketones. And it really helps with mental acuity, which so many of us are struggling with after the age of 40. So it's a way to get your hormones back into balance, as well as to fit into your jeans and all those beautiful clothes in your closet. And so I want people to have faith, to really have that sense of hope that there's a way to solve this issue as we get older. I love it. And where can people find you on social media? So sarahgottfriedmd.com is my website. You can also go there. And if you buy the book, Women, Food, and Hormones, you can get some bonuses that'll help you with going deeper with the content. On Instagram, it's Sarah Gottfried, MD. And on Facebook, it's Dr. Gottfried, Dr. Gottfried. I love it. Well, I highly recommend for all of you who are watching us here on YouTube, definitely buy the book. We're going to put a link to that as well. And for those who are listening on our podcast, I highly recommend coming over to YouTube to watch this one because um, it really is interesting to see Dr. Sarah in person. Well, in, in person on the video <laughs> and to see what she's talking about. And also you can see what the book looks like itself. Sarah, thank you so much for doing our show today. We really appreciate having you on. My pleasure, Andrea. Great to be with you. Thanks everyone.